0: Welcome to the Epsilon Theory Podcast. Our program is all about the stories we tell about the world, and the stories we are told to tell us how to think about the world. If you enjoy today's program, I have a simple favor to ask. Tell someone about us. Like, share, and subscribe to the Epsilon Theory Podcast on whatever streaming platform you use. Give us a review. It's a small thing that really helps us to reach a lot more people. Then come to our website at EpsilonTheory.com to keep the conversation going in our forum. there's a topic you'd like us to explore in a future program, the forum is a great place to let us know. Now today's program will be a little different. As many listeners know, we publish two kinds of podcasts. The first are our normal podcasts in which we discuss the narrative topic of the day. The second kind of podcasts are, for lack of a better term, books on tape. Only they aren't books on tape, they're Epsilon Theory long-form notes on tape, It sounded funny to me at first, but we had enough readers and listeners asking us to record them that we finally gave in. Today, however, we'll be combining these two formats. Specifically, Ben's going to be reading his latest note published on EpsilonTheory.com in praise of Bitcoin. But it is a note with a great many references to other part of the Epsilon Theory oeuvre. And so, we will be annotating his reading with diversions into the concepts and ideas from these other pieces. It's the next best thing to reading and digging into the actual piece, and since the pandemic is over and some of us have to commute into the office again, you can do it from the unbridled rage of the driver's seat of your car in traffic. With that, I'll turn the microphone over to my friend and partner, Dr. Ben Hunt, to present his note in praise of Bitcoin.
1: One evening a few weeks ago, I was on a Zoom call with a bunch of academic, think tank, and Fed economists for a Bitcoin discussion. A lot of names you'd know if you're familiar with those circles, the most famous one being Paul Krugman, who, by the way, I found to be charming, genuinely open-minded, and surprisingly humble about the entire enterprise of academic economics. I had been invited to be on the anti-Bitcoin side of the discussion, but they needn't have bothered, because there was no pro-Bitcoin side. Krugman led with a simple question, what's the use case for Bitcoin? Not a theoretical thing, but an actual use of Bitcoin to solve a problem in the real world, which led to an hour-long, extremely earnest, but altogether unsatisfying conversation about financial transfers out of Venezuela, trade settlement and securitization on a blockchain, and Taylor Swift's ability to control the scalper resale market for her concert tickets, all of which are real things all of which are interesting things, all of which are good things, but none of which are what got 20 busy people on a Zoom call at 8 p.m. on a Thursday night. None of which are Bitcoin. Now, to be fair, there were no old-school Bitcoin maximalists on the call. Or if they were, they were too intimidated to make an Austrian economics, hard money, neo-gold bug, Bitcoin is the inevitable global reserve currency argument in front of Paul Krugman. LOL. But I finally couldn't take it anymore. Is this really why we got on the phone tonight? To talk about a novel form of digital rights management? To talk about payment transfers out of authoritarian third world countries? Are these really our questions about Bitcoin? Answer, of course not. What got these academic think tank and government economists on the phone that night was Bitcoin trading at $50,000. The question that everyone truly cared about, But a question that everyone danced around for the better part of an hour was this. Is there any there there in the price of Bitcoin? To which everyone, including the supposedly pro-Bitcoin contingent, said no. Not just no, but no, no, no. The price of Bitcoin was an illusion. The price of Bitcoin was the madness of crowds. The price of Bitcoin had no connection to any fundamental economic activity, Just like gold had no connection to any fundamental economic activity and thus, to this audience, could have no inherent value by definition. I think this is very wrong. And I'll tell you, like I told that Zoom call, why I think there's a lot of inherent value in Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin is good art. Or better yet, because Bitcoin is elegant and beautiful fashion, sitting at the intersection of art and commerce. Most importantly, because owning Bitcoin has been an authentic expression of identity, an extremely positive identity of autonomy, entrepreneurialism, and resistance to the nudging state and the nudging oligarchy. I've been saying that Bitcoin is art for more than six years, from the effete rebellion of Bitcoin back in February 2015, to Too Clever by Half in February of 2018, to riding the cyclone, to the Spanish prisoner, and it's been a very frustrating place to be. Frustrating because public stances on Bitcoin are almost immediately turned into cartoons, Either you're the grumpy grandpa, Bitcoin is worthless, cartoon, or you're the laser-eyed cultist, Bitcoin will be the world's reserve currency, cartoon, with no room in between. The value deniers, like the Zoom crowd the other night, think I'm agreeing with them when I say that Bitcoin is art. I'm not. The true believers think I'm trolling them when I say that Bitcoin is art. I'm not. The creation of good art is, in my opinion, what we are put on this earth to do. It is our highest calling. It is my highest praise. There's lasting value in good art because it is a very scarce thing and it never gets used up. Bitcoin is itself an NFT, a unique digital artwork instantiated on the blockchain. It's the most valuable NFT in the world. I don't mean a Bitcoin. Obviously, that's a fungible thing. I mean the Bitcoin, the 21 million Bitcoins that make up the Bitcoin project. The notion that Bitcoin would ever go to zero is ludicrous. Good art is always worth something. But how do we measure that something? How do we put a price on the value of good art at this particular moment in time? it's a really tough question. There are no cash flows to art. There are no fundamentals to art. There is no use case to art. There's only story. There's only narrative. There's only common knowledge, what everyone knows that everyone knows, about the value of art. Common knowledge that emerges from our social interaction with story and narrative. In every respect that matters, Bitcoin is epsilon theory. All
0: right. Now, Ben. <laughs> yes, Rusty. <laughs> so you, as you point out in that reading, have been writing about Bitcoin for a number of years. Yeah. But I would think that the piece that resonated far more than any other was the one you mentioned that is, is too clever by half. Mm-hmm. and And too clever by half is the piece that spawned a lot of the terminology that we've used – not only to talk about Bitcoin, but to talk about, I think, some of the analogs to Bitcoin that we're going to get to as you continue to read this piece. Specifically, I believe that's the piece in which you coined the term raccoons and, yep, and it was. coyotes. Yep. And so maybe as, as an interlude here, before we get back into the note, tell us what what do you mean when you call somebody a raccoon? And what do you mean when you call somebody a
1: coyote? A coyote. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you use that as our first uh, touch point. Rusty to to the you know to what we've been writing about because that note and the reaction to that note is what really connected me with the Bitcoin and the larger crypto community in the first place because the note was about drawing a connection between Bitcoin and what's called the the, the Gaussian copula right which was a, a, a an innovation a mathematical innovation an innovation of code. That spawned the, the mortgage-backed security industry, the $10 trillion mortgage-backed security industry, or the way that was used by Wall Street. And so the point of the note was that clever human beings, coyotes, right, in, 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 in the parlance here, they're always figuring out ways to invent something, to create something, to make art right? You know, a good artist is a coyote. A good coder is a coyote. I, I think I'm a coyote. I think you are too. Maybe, maybe less so, because the coyotes, we tend to be a little myopic, and you're not a myopic person. Right? So it We tend to be, and this is that good old Brit phrase, too clever by half. We get consumed with our art, with our code, with our cleverness, and we don't look at the bigger picture what we also terminal uses terminology as the meta game which is in, in a in, when we say meta
0: game and a lot of times what we're talking about is games with repeated play in which there is yep. a game within the game and the the coyote analogy is actually a reference to where we live here in rural connecticut <laughs> yeah. and i think the example you give in the note is the coyote prowling along the edge of the woods right mm-hmm. because every every home here sits on the edge of the woods there's a couple of acres of land and then a a, a, a you know terrifying wood beyond it and the coyote prowls <laughs> along the edge and yep. uh, you know the the normal reaction of a homeowner uh, in rural Connecticut is to get that the jar of pennies and to to shake that shake ju- it shake <laughs> it at the, the that coyote t- to scare the coyote off and you know the um the clever coyote realizes after two or three times hearing the the shaken pennies, oh, well, wait a minute, I, I, I've got nothing to be afraid of. That's a yep. jar of pennies. I'm quite a clever coyote. And, of course, that cleverness is what ends up resulting in that coyote being hunted down for not leaving whenever the, the pennies are exactly. shaken. Exactly,
1: exactly. Coyotes are wonderful at the immediate game, the game you're describing, that that confrontation between the homeowner shaking that jar of pennies and the coyote, the coyote wins that game because they realize they're, they're smart, they're clever, they realize this, this is no threat <laughs> at all. But the larger game is that the animal control officer will come out when the homeowner recognizes that they've lost this immediate game. And the coyote will absolutely lose that larger game. So the, the, the point I was trying to draw in relation to to, to Bitcoin and Wall Street and mortgage-backed securities, is that these clever inventions by clever coyotes are always, at least in the field of of finance, are always absorbed and co-opted by the government and by Wall Street. And that happened with mortgage-backed securities. I see it happening with Bitcoin. And that was the source of the note, to draw that parallel. Well, and I know uh, in the the
0: response to talking about this original note, Too Clever by Half, yep. I think a lot of people had the response that the animal control officer was, well, the government coming in and shutting it down. And I think while that is possible for many kinds of financial innovation, uh, the point uh, I think you make as we go on in the reading of the note, that it isn't just... The government or other key institutions like Wall Street coming in to shut things down. But in fact, their co-option yes. of financial innovation that often poses the greater, greatest risk. So, Ben, I'll, I'll ask you at this point to go ahead and continue with, uh, with your reading of uh, in praise of Bitcoin.
1: So, yes, I've been saying that Bitcoin is art for a long time now. But what I haven't been saying, or at least not as loudly, is that bit about identity. And that's the part that needs to be shouted today. So here it is again, this time a little louder. Most importantly, owning Bitcoin has been an authentic expression of identity, an extremely positive identity of autonomy, entrepreneurialism, and resistance to the nudging state and the nudging oligarchy. This, too, is Epsilon theory.
0: So I'm going to cut in again already
1: <laughs> yeah, good.
0: in the written piece here that's a bit of an older one. Um, yep. And it's a note called Clever Hans. Mm-hmm. And you just use a term, which is another epsilon theory term of art that maybe it makes sense for us to introduce for people here who who are not have not been avid readers of the website for the last <laughs> six years, seven years of sure. publishing it. And you just use that term, and it's the nudging oligarchy, which is what that note, Clever Hans, is all about. It is. What is the nudging state and the nudging oligarchy?
1: It gets exactly back to your, your point at the end of, of discussing the uh, Too Clever by Half Note, right? Which is that the way that governments and corporations, Wall Street, the way they work is not by sending in, you know, jackbooted thugs, at least not in our country and at least not in, 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 in most of the world, right? The way they work is is not at the, the, the point of a gun, but at the point of words, at the point of what, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, you know, wrote about when they wrote about nudge. Choice architecture. Choice architecture, right. And that, that is what that note, Clever Hans, is all about. That once you start looking for it, you see how immersed we are in everyone in a position of power trying to nudge us. Not to force us into a position, but to make us want to be in that position. And of course, the reason you do that is because it's such a much more stable way of implementing control. And it's, you know, I, I'm not saying that that governments shouldn't have elements of control, right? Or, or, or that, you know, our lives should be totally free and and anarchical, right? What I'm saying is that we need to maintain our autonomy of mind and that if we choose to be nudged if we choose to take an action then we actually choose it we don't have it be the result of being presented with a choice where it's a hobson's choice right where the the choice is no choice at all well here's a question because i i don't think
0: we've ever discussed this before And, and i was thinking of hobson's choice when we think of all these terms that that we've coined to relate to this, and and some of the other terms that have been coined by others, like you know, I think paternal libertarianism. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we we've we, in addition to you know the ones we've just mentioned, we've also talked about smiley faced authoritarianism, right, right, and and in all of those cases, there's a bit of this this oxymoronic effect to it. Mm-hmm. How much of that is what you find so distasteful about this? Is it the mendacity <laughs> of saying you are free and yet you are not? Is it the, the, the dishonesty of smiling in the face of authoritarianism? Or is it more than just the frustration with the, that, that mendacity? And, and does it go into the actual inefficiency of that function as a way of, of, of government to organize um, you know, certain fields of human activity?
1: The mendacity is a big part of it. Yeah. Rusty. And it goes back to, you know, you read certain books at just the right time in your life. And for me, it was reading 1984 at just the right time in my life. And then reading the rest of what Orwell wrote and reading as a teenager about the use of language. Cause that's what Orwell, that that's what 1984 is really all about. It's the ability to use language to change the way we think. And that, and that that was such an impactful um, observation teaching on me from such a uh, from, from, from from such an early age so i've I've, I've always been focused on that as, as my view the greatest source of control in the modern world, the control of history that's what Orwell writes about, but then also to be able to pull forward the future into again, one of our terms, the long now, where all we rely on are the words of that nudging state and that nudging corporate oligarchy. That, to me, is frankly the, 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 the enemy of our innate human liberty, which is an autonomy of mind, and you know, get again get to go back to the nature of the note. That's what I've always admired about that Bitcoin and crypto community more broadly is that there's such a strong autonomy of mind and a strong resistance to being nudged in one direction or another. And that's why I wrote this
0: note. Well, and I think as 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 you and I both believe and and know, you know, the financial markets that were in so many cases, the, the progenitors of so much of this, you know, the forms of financial innovation, you know, we would long have, have made that exact same argument that, that financial markets are where consenting individuals and, yep. and adults get together to make determinations about how resources and capital ought to be allocated and all of those things. And so there was always a, a very powerful narrative of autonomy of mind. And the, the power of a collective of individuals outside of the the, the power of a, of a nudging oligarchy or nudging state
1: politics too, Rusty. I mean, it's free markets and free elections, right? That that's at the heart of instantiating what I like to call the you know the small L liberal virtues. And free money now,
0: <laughs> right? Yeah, right? I mean, not not free in the costless sense, but a, a free way of thinking about a, a transaction and, and currency is part of what we're discussing now. But as you point out, as we continue with the note, just as subject to those same nudges that come from the oligarchy in the state. So, absolutely right. I'll turn it back over to you to continue the reading.
1: So, why am I shouting about identity? Because the artistic Bitcoin identity I admire and value has been subverted by the neutering machine of Wall Street and the regulatory panopticon of the U.S. Treasury Department. Because what made Bitcoin special in the first place is now nearly lost. And what remains is a false and constructed narrative that exists in service to Wall Street and Washington rather than in resistance. Yes, the nudging state and the nudging oligarchy strike back. They always do when it comes to money, not with imperial stormtroopers or legislative sanction, with golden handcuffs and administrative surveillance. It, it's not that the state and the status quo institutionalization of capital, call it Wall Street for short, have any desire to ban Bitcoin. Why would they do that? No, far better to accommodate and swallow Bitcoin like they have every other financial innovation for the past 1,000 years. Far better to neuter the censorship-resistant and anonymity-preserving aspects of Bitcoin and turn it into another gaming table in the Wall Street casino. In my dystopian vision, Bitcoin isn't banned or criminalized. (laughs) That's That's a rookie weak state move. No, I see a future where everyone buys Bitcoin where you are encouraged to buy Bitcoin, where Bitcoin is sold to you morning, noon, and night, where normie economists get on the conference calls late at night because they're Bitcoin price curious. Except it's not really Bitcoin. Instead, it's Bitcoin trademark, a cartoon version of the OG Bitcoin, either a Wall Street abstracted representation of the price of Bitcoin or a government-painted version of Bitcoin in dayglow orange. Either way, abstracted or painted, your Bitcoin is trackable and traceable, fully KYC and AML and FBAR and SWIFT and every other U.S. Treasury acronym compliant. Either way, your Bitcoin has all the revolutionary potential of a bumper sticker and all the identity-signaling power of a small tattoo on your upper arm. Bitcoin trademark doesn't stick it to the man. Bitcoin is the man. Welcome to the 2021 Hunger Games.
0: You know, I was going to get a tattoo in my <laughs> upper arm, and I, I just I feel so shamed out of it
1: now, Ben. <laughs> well, it's it's the difference between getting a tattoo as, as something that can be safe for work, and then getting a tattoo that is not safe for work and um i don't know there's 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 a there's a place and a purpose for both i just uh i i just admire the more i'll call it going full mike tyson yeah right i you know does it does it does it does it require a a face tattoo i don't know but uh um Yeah, full Mike Tyson. So you
0: you refer to this as the you know the 2021 Hunger Games, right? And this is of course a reference to uh, and in in the piece you link to a note that you wrote earlier in 2021 called the Hunger Games, Mm -hmm. which was about something else, and and it was um, I think a, a highlighting of the the whole Wall Street bets and and GameStop affair of Robin Hood, all that, or or I mean I say of January and February, but. Let's be honest, there are elements of this that are very much still in play. And, For and, sure. And when you talked about being sold Bitcoin day in and day out, um, you know, I, I certainly had images of, of CNBC's, you know, GameStop price trackers. Yeah, like their
1: Bitcoin tri- price trackers, yeah. right? Yeah.
0: And, and, and how that was it, was, it was not to report on what was going on. It was very clear that it was intended to to prod me and other viewers to action.
1: That's right, that, that in both cases, both uh, GameStop and Robinhood, uh, and today with Bitcoin, and, or Bitcoin, as I like to call it, the, the goal here is to wrap you up in a story of democratizing Wall Street. Because that's a very motivating story. Man, that's a good story, right? That, that oh, it's the little guys, and they're finally sticking it to the man. My point is that whether we're talking about GameStop and whatever subreddit and Diamond Hands and, and, and Robinhood, or we're talking about the way that Bitcoin is productized by Wall Street, this is not the little guy sticking it to the man. This is not a democratization of Wall Street. This is Wall Street, <laughs> my view, impacting our democracy. It's, it's, it's a false narrative, uh, but it's a very effective one nonetheless.
0: And a powerful expression of how many different social institutions uh, these kind of activities impact. So powerful stuff, but I'll turn it over to you
1: again to continue the reading. The abstracted version of Bitcoin is a Wall Street specialty. What is Bitcoin in abstracted form? It's a securitization or representation of Bitcoin ownership that promises the price appreciation of Bitcoin without the hassle of Bitcoin ownership. It's a casino chip that represents the price of Bitcoin. Michael Saylor, for example, is only too happy to sell you a micro-strategy casino chip. Or maybe you'd prefer to play on the Canadian crypto ETF felt. Or try your luck at the wheel of a Morgan Stanley private fund. Why does Wall Street love abstracted forms? Because there are no fundamental limits to how many of these Bitcoin casino chips that Wall Street can sell. It doesn't matter if all the OG Bitcoin hodlers keep on hodling. It doesn't matter if the vast majority of all the Bitcoins ever mined never get caught up in the Wall Street neutering machine. There are an infinite number of games that can be created around the price of Bitcoin as a reference point, just like there are an infinite number of bets that can be made on a football game. There are an infinite number of rehypothecations and derivative representations that can be made off the millions of margined Bitcoins that have already been captured by Wall Street custodied accounts. The only limiting factor on how many of these Bitcoin casino chips Wall Street can sell, is the effectiveness of the narrative they've created around Bitcoin itself. That Bitcoin is a, quote, hedge against inflation, unquote. It's a store of value that is uniquely positioned to protect your portfolio against dollar debasement because it's hard money immune to money printer go burr. It's rather artistic in and of itself, right? Selling an unlimited number of Bitcoin casino chips off a meme slamming unlimited fiat money printing. Creating an unlimited number of entertaining market games and venues where we can use our Bitcoin casino chips. If these narratives and casino games sound familiar, it's because this is exactly the same process of abstraction, securitization, and leverage, that Wall Street has been using for the past 20 years with precious metals. What is the GLD ETF? It's GOLD, trademark. What is a unit in an ETF basket of gold miner stocks? It's GOLD! They and their mini-can are securitizations of gold ownership that promise the price appreciation of gold without the hassle of gold ownership. They are casino chips that represent the price of gold. I'm old enough to remember when people bought and sold gold coins in private transactions. I guess we'd call that peer-to-peer today. I'm old enough to remember when well-meaning people would have earnest conversations about gold as a reserve currency. Just like well-meaning people today have those same earnest conversations about Bitcoin. I'm also old enough to remember how quickly those conversations died out after State Street launched GLD in 2004 and took in a billion dollars in a few days. Turns out people didn't really want the grumpy grandpa identity of owning physical gold in some Mad Max world as much as they wanted gold in their financial portfolios as an abstracted insurance policy against central bank error. It's exactly the same with Bitcoin today. You think institutional adoption is driven by a spirit of personal autonomy, entrepreneurialism, and resistance to the nudging state and nudging oligarchy? You think Paul Tudor Jones and Mike Novogratz want to B-I-T-F-D? LOL. The only difference to Wall Street between gold and Bitcoin is that gold is tired and Bitcoin is wired. The king is dead. Long live the king. This is the artistic genius of Wall Street. The creation of new product to trade, new assets to manage, all through the alchemy of securitization and leverage. This is flow. It's like Ash said about the chest-bursting xenomorph in Alien. You may not admire the creature itself, but you got to admire its purity. Unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. So that's the quote from Alien. And yep, that's Wall Street. Ditto the U.S. Treasury. In fact, if there's a Western governmental institution that is more unclouded by conscience remorse, or delusions of morality than the U.S. Treasury, I am unaware of what that institution might be. But unlike Wall Street, which is motivated by flow, the U.S. Treasury has an entirely different but highly compatible goal. The goal of the U.S. Treasury is to see all of the money in the world. That's really all it is. That's what anti-money laundering AML regulations are all about. That's what Know Your Client, KYC, regulations are all about. That's what the Report of Foreign Bank and Financial Accounts, FBAR, regulations are all about. That's what the Treasury-led Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications, SWIFT, is all about. That's what the Bank Secrecy Act, BSA, is all about. None of these programs are really about taxes. None of these programs are really about catching crooks or fighting terrorists. All of these programs are really about information for information's sake regarding the greatest source of power in the world and the raison d'etre of every government on Earth. Money. The U.S. Treasury is the eye of Sauron a gigantic panopticon tower that sweeps the world with this unblinking gaze, seeking out the owners of power, i.e. money. The U.S. Treasury can't see Bitcoin. It can, however, see Bitcoin. The giant all-seeing eye of the U.S. Treasury is primarily built on two regulatory structures, the Bank Security Act, BSA, to compel transparency and reporting by financial institutions, on their clients and themselves, and the Report of Foreign Bank and Financial Accounts, FBAR, a system to compel transparency and reporting by individuals on their financial institutions and themselves. There are a dozen more acronyms and programs involved here, all overseen by Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN. But to keep things simple, I'm going to refer to all of this as the BSA, FBAR, Regulatory panopticon. Everything in plain text, in the next two paragraphs I'm going to read, is regulatory policy as it currently stands with the BSA and FBAR. Everything in bold italics, which I'll highlight, is a new policy proposed in the past few months and expected to go into effect shortly. Taken together, I think it will be clear how Treasury uses the combined BSA and FBAR instruments to mark your Bitcoin with a day-glow orange fluorescent paint, and create their highly visible version of Bitcoin. So here's what's happening with the BSA. If you are in the business of money in any way, shape, or form, what Treasury calls a money transmitter, and you do any of that business in the U.S., then you are subject to the Bank Secrecy Act. Note that this money transmitter designation and BSA jurisdiction explicitly includes peer-to-peer exchanges that work with self-hosted wallets. If you are subject to the BSA, then it is your affirmative obligation to collect complete identifying information regarding clients who transmit or receive more than $3,000 over your systems, and to collect and immediately report to Treasury complete identifying information regarding clients who transmit or receive more than $10,000 over your systems. And here's the italicized part. Here's the new proposed regulation. Including any cryptocurrency, what Treasury calls convertible virtual currency, transmitted to or from a self-hosted wallet. Now, bar. If you are a U.S. entity, citizen or resident, any type of U.S.-registered corporate or trust structure, etc., and you have any sort of account, banking, securities, custodial, etc., with any non-U.S. money transmitter anywhere in the world, and at any time during the course of the year, you have in the aggregate across all of your accounts more than $10,000 in value in those accounts, now here's the italicized part, including the value of any cryptocurrency holdings, convertible virtual currency, in those accounts in then it is your affirmative obligation to report complete identifying information regarding each of those accounts to the IRS in a report of foreign bank and financial accounts fbar i think the intent here is crystal clear whatever rules were in place yesterday regarding transfers of dollars or rubles or pesos through U.S. touching money transmitters or by U.S. entities, well, now those exact same rules are going to apply to Bitcoin. As soon as your virtual currency holdings land in any financial institution that cooperates with or does business in or is regulated by the United States, bam, your Bitcoin is painted day-glow orange and becomes the treasury-preferred form of Bitcoin. When these regulations go into full effect, as I understand them, the only remaining safe harbor for keeping your Bitcoin hidden from the BSA FBAR Eye of Sauron will be to maintain a self-hosted wallet that never connects with a money transmitter that does business in the United States. That's a safe harbor for the moment, but ultimately nothing is safe from the Eye of Sauron. While 2019 guidance explicitly states that, quote, a person conducting a transaction through an unhosted wallet to purchase goods or services on their own behalf is not a money transmitter, close quote, and so is not subject to the Bank Secrecy Act directly, the December 2020 proposed rulemaking documents also included this doozy of a comment. Quote, the Treasury Department has previously noted that Anonymity in transactions and funds transfers is the main risk that facilitates money laundering. The Financial Action Task Force has similarly observed that the extent to which anonymous peer-to-peer permit transactions via unhosted wallets without involvement of a virtual asset service provider or financial institution, that's a key potential AML-CFT risk in some CVC systems. Financial Action Task Force members have specifically observed that unregulated peer-to-peer transactions could present a leak in tracing illicit flows of virtual assets, particularly if one or more blockchain-based CVC networks were to reach global scale. Importantly, as explained below, while data contained on some blockchains are open to public inspection and can be used by authorities to attempt to trace illicit activity, FinCEN believes that this data does not sufficiently mitigate the risks of unhosted and otherwise covered wallets. Close quote. That last paragraph doesn't mince words. Even if the blockchain facilitating a cryptocurrency allows for authorities to trace transactions, the risks of unhosted and otherwise covered, i.e. hidden from the eye of Sauron, wallets, are too great to stand. L-O-L. I think we all see where this is going. Now, the response I get from the Bitcoin and larger crypto community to what seems to me to be the clear intent and path of treasury regulations is always this. Well, good luck enforcing that. Unfortunately, That's the evil artistry of panopticons like the Eye of Sauron or Treasury's BSA FBAR regulatory structure. We are driven to willingly enforce their discipline on ourselves. A panopticon is an institutional structure that creates a permanent feeling of being watched. Maybe you are and maybe you aren't in any given moment. But you're never sure that you're not being watched. And if you are being watched, then you better fess up and cooperate before you get your head stuck on an orc's pike. Did I mention that the penalty for a willful failure to make an FBAR report was the greater of $100,000 or 50% of the unreported foreign assets? Moreover, a panopticon structure allows you to see the behavior of others, and they of you. If the discipline imposed by the watcher includes obligations to snitch, and that's exactly what the Treasury requires here, with obligations on money transmitters to report on clients and obligations on clients to report on money transmitters, a panopticon sets up a classic prisoner's dilemma game where the only equilibrium is for both the money transmitter and the client to volunteer information about the other. Once you start looking for panopticons in our modern world, you will find them everywhere. And of course, there's an Epsilon Theory note on this.
0: And hopefully enough, it's an Epsilon Theory <laughs> note entitled... Panopticon. Panopticon. That's which, right. which of course uh which you didn't go into in this note but do in the original Panopticon note is a is a reference to Bentham's original yep. conceptualization of the perfect prison, right? The this, perfect prison. Which um and and you've described all the traits of it, but very simply the idea is imagine a a circular prison mm-hmm. where the the cells view inside and and view I mean very literally where the idea is that each prisoner not only is able to be viewed by the central guard tower in the middle, yep. but is in full view of all of the, the other, other prisoners. prisoners. And so there is not only the effect of guards watching prisoners and prisoners watching prisoners, but more important, and this is the point you're making, every prisoner being aware, not only and of the belief that he's being watched, but that... Others, you know, that everyone knows that they are being watched and that they are watching one another, and it becomes this not only a, a, a this feeling that the that the government is watching you, but that you know you could be reported at any time by any participant in a transaction.
1: Yep, it it is the the incredible power of again the state, the oligarchy, corporations, to create a system where we enforce discipline on ourselves.
0: Well, I'm going to have to enforce some discipline on us if we have any hope of finishing this before the hour mark. So uh, I'll take this opportunity to throw it back to you, Ben, to uh, take us home.
1: You're not opposed to transparency, are you? Why would you be opposed to transparency unless you have something to hide? You're not a, a terrorist lover, are you? No, I didn't think so. See, It's not just that Wall Street and the U.S. Treasury dominate policy. Far more perniciously, they also dominate narrative. And that's why I'm writing this note. Frankly, I doubt that the policy battle can be won. This has been my view since I first started writing about Bitcoin, and nothing has happened to change my mind. On the contrary, Treasury's move to make crypto visible and controllable Have happened faster than I thought they would. I mean, I'm hopeful that we are at least at some point of policy equilibrium with the proposed rule changes to BSA and FBAR, an equilibrium that will at least allow self-hosted crypto wallets to exist in peace. But hope, unfortunately, is not a strategy. So no, I don't think I can help much in this policy battle. I think I can help a lot in the narrative battle. Or rather, the narrative machine can help. You see, the Bitcoin narrative must be renewed. Bitcoin has been an authentic expression of identity, a positive identity of autonomy, entrepreneurialism, and resistance to the nudging state and the nudging oligarchy. It can be again. Wall Street and Treasury are running a PSYOP with their creation of Bitcoin. And it's necessary to think about Bitcoin in those PSYOP narrative terms if the goal is to preserve an active community with an identity of autonomy, entrepreneurialism, and resistance to the nudging state and the nudging oligarchy in the context of Bitcoin specifically and crypto more generally. That's my goal anyway. I'm not in this for Bitcoin is global reserve currency. I'm not in this for a number go up. I'm not in this for a store of value against that gosh darn dollar debasement. I'm not in this for flow. I'm not opposed to any of those things, and I don't think you're a bad person if those are your things. They're just not my things. I'm in this for Bitcoin as good art and the inspiration it provides to a community that shares my values and goals for making a better world. Phase one of this anti-SYOP campaign is to identify shelling points, game solutions that people arrive at by default in the absence of direct communication, also called focal points, so that people who share this goal of community organization and narrative reclamation can find each other. I think that one of these shelling points is maintaining a self-hosted wallet and the capacity for peer-to-peer connections away from the eye of Sauron. Starting today, Epsilon Theory will accept Bitcoin as payment for all annual subscriptions through our BTC Pay server. It's a plain vanilla Raspberry Pi setup. We're not holding ourselves out as crypto mavens. We're signaling an identity of autonomy entrepreneurialism and resistance to the nudging state and the nudging oligarchy in the context of Bitcoin. Phase two of this anti psy machine is to use the narrative machine to measure and visualize the narrative archetypes and story arcs of Bitcoin. In exactly the same way that there are only, say, a dozen archetypal scripts for every TV sitcom that's ever been filmed— or in exactly the same way that there are three acts to every modern movie screenplay, so is there an underlying structure and a finite number of underlying archetypes to the media coverage of every market entity. We believe that we can measure these narrative structures and archetypes as they apply to Bitcoin and map those structural dynamics to market behaviors. Seeing is believing, and I think there is no better way to prove the existence of Bitcoin in both this Wall Street-abstracted and its Treasury-painted form, than to show the PSYOP in action. I think this sort of analysis and visualization will get a lot of people who would otherwise be quick to dismiss our claims to take a fresh look at the ways in which we have been nudged. Phase three of this anti-PSYOP campaign is simply to call things by their proper names. That starts with locating the value of Bitcoin in its elegant art and its ability, like all elegant art, to inspire great things away from the art itself. Yes, great things away from Bitcoin itself. So that even if Bitcoin dominates financial markets, which it will, the story arc of Bitcoin doesn't end there but generates a thousand new initiatives to improve our world. We don't have to tell a story of price. We don't have to tell a story of apocalypse. We don't have to scold or educate. We can tell an old story of autonomy of mind and generosity of spirit within a new context of Bitcoin and crypto. You know, a couple of thousand years ago, a really smart guy, the most subversive, revolutionary guy you can imagine, had a good line. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Bitcoin definitely belongs to Caesar. It's part of his game. But Bitcoin doesn't have to be. It can be part of our game. Still. Again, and that will change everything.
0: Well, thank you for joining us for the first crossover episode between the Epsilon Theory podcast and Epsilon Theory on Tape. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, uh, we are so grateful for your support. Uh, And if you enjoyed this reading today, uh, I hope you will go on to the service that you use to stream the podcast and like, share, and subscribe and leave us a review. We also hope you'll come to EpsilonTheory.com and join us in the forum where this conversation will continue. In the meantime, I want to thank you, Ben, uh, for being with us here today. Thank you, Rusty. Great as always. And we look forward to speaking with all of you at our next podcast. Thanks, everyone.